The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the 10th chapter and the 20th verse. The 20th verse in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice rather because your names are written in heaven. There can be no doubt that this is one of the most important uh, incidents in the life and training of the disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here they were sent out by him for the very first time to exercise their ministry. He gave them power to preach and to cast out devils. And they went out, you remember, and we are told here that the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They came back full of elation, uh, full of a spirit of satisfaction and of joy in the light of the things that they had thus been enabled to do. Never did a body of men seem to be so happy, and never, looking at it superficially, was there ever a body of men that had greater right to rejoice and to feel this sense of satisfaction. But you remember, our Lord at once detects something very dangerous in their condition, and he proceeds to speak to them in a most solemn manner, and issues to them what really can be described as a very stern warning. Immediately he said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now that's a difficult statement in many ways and is open to a number of different interpretations. There are those who wouldn't hesitate to say that what it really means is this. But as our Lord looked at these men and saw their elation and their joy and their rejoicing at the success of their mission, he looked at them and said, Why have seen somebody remarkably like you before? I beheld Satan, that bright angelic spirit, that uh, angel created by God and endued and endowed with such remarkable powers. I've seen him fall from his position of glory down to the very depths because of something very similar to this. Whether that is the right interpretation or not, one finally, of course, cannot prove. But it is at any rate open to that interpretation. And as I want to try to show you, the remainder of our Lord's statement does seem to suggest that that is, after all, the right way of looking at that remarkable and extraordinary statement. Our Lord seems to use the case of Satan himself to point and to press this stern warning of his to his elated and rejoicing disciples. Very well, then, I say, 
this is clearly something that is of supreme importance. And our Lord goes on to elaborate it. Behold, he says, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding. In this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, this uh, warning applies obviously not only to those uh, first disciples, but to all of us. No doubt these Gospels have been given to us in order that these lessons might be appropriated by us. In the training of these disciples, we see a picture of the training of all Christians. And what our Lord points out as being a danger, and a very great danger to these men, therefore, is equally a great danger for us. And here, then, our Lord calls us to face what is perhaps, after all, one of the greatest dangers confronting us, likewise, in our Christian life and in our spiritual warfare. What is it? Well, we can put it in a phrase by putting it like this. It is our fatal tendency to rejoice in the wrong things in connection with our spiritual life and experience. Now here, in the case of the disciples, it was the tendency to rejoice in that particular gift that he'd given them. The gift of being able to control and to cast out and to master and exercise, exercise these devils. But that's only an illustration. It is equally applicable to the tendency to rejoice in any type of gift. Anything that is given to us by the Lord in our Christian life. Let me mention some of them that come to us perhaps most frequently. Experiences. They're given to us by the Lord in his grace exactly in the same way as he gave this power to cast out devils to the seventy. And therefore there is this tendency to rejoice in experiences. Visions, things we've felt, things we've seen and heard, remarkable happenings in our life and in our experience. They're given to us from God and by God. And the danger is, I say, to rejoice in such things. Or it can apply to many other gifts. It may apply even to a man's natural ability. And that natural ability is applied to the scriptures. A man may be given the gift of understanding the scriptures, the gift of teaching, the gift of expounding, the gift of preaching, the gift of reasoning, the gift of logic, the ability to argue and to demonstrate the truth, a knowledge of truth and of doctrine. All these things are gifts which are given to men by God. No man can generate or create or produce for himself such gifts in exactly the same way as the gift of casting out devils was given to the seventy. God gives us these various gifts in connection with our Christian life and warfare. And the danger is, I say, the danger of rejoicing in these particular gifts, in these abilities, 
in these various things that have come to us and are a part and parcel of our whole life and experience. Oh, and you can think of many others, success in our work. Whether it be public work or whether it be private work, it doesn't matter. Anything that we may be doing for God and in connection with his kingdom, whatever the form it may take. Now, according to our Lord, this is something about which we have to be very wary. He seems to be almost harsh, doesn't he, with these men. Here they come back, the very first time, I say. They'd been sent out for the first time, and back they come, full of this rejoicing and this glorying in what had taken place. And suddenly our Lord speaks these solemn words that almost seem to crush them. It must, I say, be something, therefore, that is of the greatest importance. And indeed, anyone who knows anything at all about himself or herself or about the spiritual life must have already experienced and have known what a terribly serious thing this is. Certainly, speaking for myself, I can say this without any hesitation, that I would say that there is nothing that is productive of more problems which come to a pastor than just this very thing. Uh, so constantly one has to deal with people who at one moment are elated, at the next moment terribly depressed. Uh, sometimes they come in and nothing, as it were, can possibly hold them down. They're flowing over with joy and with rejoicing at what's happening. You meet them the next time and they look haggard and drawn and unhappy. They're down in the depths. It's generally due to this very thing, the unsteadiness in our Christian life and experience and in our Christian department can generally be traced back to our failure to realize this very thing which our Lord is here impressing upon the seventy. Now, the important thing for us is if we can to arrive at a principle. What is the essence of this problem? Well, I would suggest that it's this. It is our tendency, which we show all along the line, to be interested in manifestations rather than in principles. If you like, it's our tendency to be interested in symptoms rather than diseases. It's our tendency to be interested in fruit rather than in the life which produces the fruit. It's our interest in the outward rather than the inward, the spectacular rather than the real and the solid. Now, here is something I say which really is a principle that is applicable all along the line in our Christian life. Is not this the essential cause of our trouble in connection with the problem of sin? So many of us are deluded by Satan because we're interested in sins rather than in sin. And because we're interested in sins rather than sin, the next step is we become interested in particular sins and ignore all the rest. Now, if we were better concentrate on the principle of sin and of evil rather than upon the occasional manifestations, we should always be alive and alert. We'd never know a feeling of self-satisfaction. It is men and women who have thought of this whole problem in terms of particular sins only, who tend to talk about perfection. 
And we imagine that they have arrived and that they no longer sin, who passed, as they say, from the 7th to the 8th of Romans and have no longer any troubles in their lives. That's because they've been interested in manifestations rather than in the principle. So, you see, it works there on that negative side in the whole problem of sin in our lives. But, and the thing which we want to deal with more particularly this morning is that it is equally true on the other side and as regards salvation. The essence of the trouble is that instead of being interested in the great salvation itself, we are interested in its occasional manifestation in certain consequences, in certain results of salvation. And because we tend to put those things before the great thing itself, I say we tend to land in trouble. Well, now then, our Lord deals with that great principle here. And what he tells us is what he said to these symptoms that we must not go on rejoicing in these particular things. Now, let's be quite clear about this. Our Lord does not say that it is wrong to rejoice in these particular things. Because clearly, a God-given gift is something in which a man ought to rejoice and should rejoice. Actually, what our Lord said is this. However, let me give you an alternative translation. However, he said to them, you must stop rejoicing over the, facts that, over the fact that the spirits are submitting to you, but continue to rejoice that your names are enrolled in heaven. Now, by translating it like that, I think we bring out this point. Our Lord doesn't uh, condemn the mere fact of the rejoicing. What he does condemn is their tendency to persist or to continue in rejoicing in that particular thing. Because if they continue to rejoice in that, it becomes the chief and the main thing in their lives. And that's the thing that's wrong. You are not to go on rejoicing, he says, in the fact that the spirits are subject to you. What you are to go on rejoicing in is the fact that your names are written in heaven. And thereby, you see, he brings us face to face with the essence of the argument. Let me divide it up for you like this. Why are we not to go on rejoicing in these particular gifts? Why does our Lord say, nevertheless, notwithstanding, in this do not continue to rejoice. I commend you to stop rejoicing in that fact in order that you may go on rejoicing in the other. But why does he tell them to stop rejoicing in this? Well, here it seems to me are some of the answers to that question. Gifts, after all, are not a proof of the fact that we are truly Christian. Now that may sound rather alarming, but I can justify it from the scripture. It is wrong to go on rejoicing in a particular gift, because, I say, the possession of a gift does not prove of necessity that we really are Christians. Now, here is the proof. Amongst these people who were sent out by our Lord on this occasion was Judas Iscariot. Nowhere are we told in the scripture that these gifts were not given to Judas. 
the gifts were given to all the disciples without any distinction whatsoever. And there is no doubt that Judas was able to exercise these gifts in exactly the same way as the other disciples. There was no distinction. Had it been the case that the other eleven possessed them and exercised them and Judas alone didn't, everybody would have been suspicious of him from the very beginning. And yet you remember when we come to the end of the story, not one of these disciples knew which it was of their number that was going to betray their Lord. There was apparently no difference between Judas and the others. He'd had all the same gifts and he was able to exercise them. So you see, it is possible for a man to have one of these gifts and still not be a Christian. Now that's a principle that we find in the Old Testament, isn't it? The prophets teach us that it was the Lord who raised up Cyrus. God has often raised up and has used a pagan power or a pagan person to exercise a certain ministry. There is no reason why God should not, if he so chooses, give a particular gift to anybody. But the fact that he has done so does not prove that such a person is truly a Christian. If you want the final proof, you have it in the words of our Lord himself at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he deals, you remember, with this whole question of the false prophets. He says that at that last day, the day of judgment, Many will come to me and will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils, this very thing, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and yet I will say unto them, depart from me. I never knew you, ye workers of iniquity. Now there are people, you see, who will be able to say quite truly that they have cast out devils in the name of Christ and yet they don't belong to him. Well, isn't it obvious, therefore, that this is not something in which we should continue to rejoice? Isn't it a very dangerous thing, therefore, to be looking at this and concentrating upon this? This is the big thing, the thing in which we go on and persist in rejoicing. It's obviously a highly dangerous thing for us to do. It may be concealing from us the last condition of our souls. It's very difficult to differentiate and to distinguish between natural and spiritual gifts. A man with a natural understanding can often understand the scriptures up to a point. He may be able to analyze it, but it doesn't mean that he has a spiritual understanding of necessity. A man may be, may be able to preach with great eloquence. He may be interested in arguing about doctrine. It doesn't prove of necessity that he is a Christian. Very well, says our Lord, don't rejoice in this, don't persist, don't go on rejoicing in that. That's not the big thing. Then another reason for not rejoicing in that, obviously, is the danger of pride. And the danger of self and of self-conceit. Ah, my friends, this is the greatest danger in the Christian life. This is the most subtle danger of all. This is the last enemy of the greatest saints. You read their lives and you'll find they'll always tell you that their greatest enemy was themselves. When the world no longer could appeal to them and when the flesh seemed to be almost dormant if not dead, self was still there. Self is the last enemy. And of course there is nothing that so panders to self and so tends to puff up self as the possession of gifts. 
The Bible again is eloquent about this matter. The twelfth chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians and the thirteenth chapter, that's their great theme. It was the thing that was threatening to ruin the life of the church at Corinth. And of all things that tend to pander to pride and to inflate us with pride and self-satisfaction and everything that ministers to self, the possession of gifts, the giving of experiences, these are the things, you see, it puts us at the center all along. It's something I've done or something that's happened to me. And that is why these things are always so dangerous to the soul. Now the apostle, I think, uh, sums it all up very perfectly in a well-known word that he writes to Timothy. It's in the sixth verse of the third chapter of the first epistle to Timothy. In talking about the appointment of bishops, this is what he says. Not a novice. You mustn't appoint a novice. You mustn't appoint somebody who's only just been converted, says the apostle. You mustn't take a raw recruit, as it were, a man who's only just entered into the Christian life. Why? Well, here, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, which justifies that interpretation of this reference to Satan falling as lightning to which I referred just now. Don't appoint a novice, don't put a man who's only just been converted into a position of leadership, uh, says the apostle to this young man, Timothy, because if you do, there is the danger of his being lifted up with pride and it'll happen to him as it happened to the devil who fell from his position of glory down to hell. Now I wonder whether we're all as alive to this danger as we should be. The principle is that we are not to glory, not to rejoice, not to have as the central thing which leads to our happiness either something that has happened to us or something that we are given to do. Don't go on rejoicing in that, says our Lord. And then my last reason at this point would be this. That all these things, after all, tend to be transient and therefore uncertain. And therefore, as I've said, they tend to lead to a lack of balance and a lack of steadiness in the Christian life. Oh, I'm sure you'll all agree with me when I say that there is nothing which is quite so humbling and humiliating in one's Christian life and experience as to note the fluctuations. Is there anything that is more grievous than that when you look at yourself and examine yourself in the light of this word? When we realize what we ought to be, is there anything of which we are so ashamed as the fact that our lives fluctuate so much? Up and down, happy and less happy, perhaps even miserable, certain and uncertain. Now, all these fluctuations, as I'm suggesting, are probably to be traced ultimately to the fact that we are rejoicing in the wrong thing. We are allowing our Christian life to be controlled and governed and determined by something which is not central. We are taking hold of some incidental, something that is there occasionally, but not permanently. It's like a man who's only happy when he's looking at flowers, and if he hasn't got them in the winter, well, then he's no comfort and no consolation whatsoever. It's because we are interested in the things that come and go, rather than in the things that are permanent and eternal. Don't rejoice in this, says our Lord. You're enabled to do this now. A day may come when you're not. I give the power, I can withhold the power. Don't base your life on that, therefore. Don't go on and rejoice. 
in the fact that the devils are made subject to you. Don't be over-related as you are. Don't make this the beginning and the end of your experience. And that then brings him to the positive. You are to stop rejoicing in that, he says, but you are to go on rejoicing in this other thing. Well, what is that? Well, here it is. In the fact that your names are written in heaven. Now, this is one of the most remarkable and glorious things I think that we can ever consider. And for myself, I feel that there is nothing so vital as just to realize what is, after all, to be central. That's the value of a holiday, I sometimes think, that it gives you time to look at things as a whole. We are all in danger always of being immersed in details in our work. It's almost inevitable to us. And we tend to lose our sense of proportion. The great reason for taking a holiday is that it gives you your sense of proportion back. While you're in the midst of things, I say, you tend to get lost. The value of a holiday is you go aside, you stand apart, and you look on at it all, and you begin to see things as they are truly. Well, now then, I says, our Lord, this is the thing. The thing of all things in the Christian life is that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing to go on rejoicing in. Why? Well, we can answer the question quite simply. First of all, it's the opposite of the three things that I've noticed already on the negative side. If you like, this is an absolute proof of the fact that uh, we are Christians. You don't uh, take much pride in this fact because you know that your name is written in heaven not because you've done anything or because you are what you are, but because of the grace of God. It's a glorious thing and it's the most humbling thing at the same time. To realize that your name is written in heaven doesn't inflate anybody with pride. It shouldn't do if he understands what it means. It's therefore something in which he can rejoice without any danger of pride, the thing that caused the fall of Satan to enter in. And of course the other thing is that it's permanent. It's transient. If it's there, it's there. And will be there. However, let me break that up. Let me put it in the form of a number of principles. Why can we safely and legitimately rejoice in this fact? And why indeed does our Lord exhort us to do so? Because, my friends, we are meant to rejoice in this. Indeed, I like to think of this as being the essential definition of a Christian. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a man who rejoices in the fact that his name is written in heaven. Why must I rejoice in this? Why should I? Well, first of all, it emphasizes what we are and not what we do. What an important point that is. That's the key to the understanding of the whole of the first epistle to the Corinthians. You rejoice in what you are and in nothing else. You see, the church at Corinth was split up, you remember, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. What was the matter with them? They were rejoicing in men. Why were they rejoicing in men? Because in their ignorance, because they were babes in Christ, they were not rejoicing in what they were. If you put anything in the place of what you are as a Christian, you'll eventually go astray. They were rejoicing in particular spiritual gifts. One had a great gift, another had a lesser gift. The eye was despising the foot and the hand and so on and vice versa. 
What's it all due to? Well, it's due to the fact that they're not rejoicing in what they are, but in gifts that they've received and that they're able to exercise. And so on, you go right through the whole epistle, the strong brother and the weak brother, and all the rest of it. It's entirely due to this. So we can safely rejoice in this because it puts its emphasis on what we are. And you see, by putting the emphasis on what we are, it puts the emphasis on grace. Let me make this clear again. I'm not trying to depreciate gifts. We are not meant to depreciate gifts, as Paul puts it to those Corinthians. Seek rather, he says, the best gifts. Yet show you a more excellent way. And what is the more excellent way? Well, the more excellent way is to walk from gifts to grace and to graces. The more excellent way is to go out of the realm of things you do to this wonderful realm of what you are. And then comes the hymn of love in the 13th chapter. We are not depreciating gifts, but we are exalting grace. Grace is altogether superior to gifts. Because grace eventually is love. And love is God himself, for God is love. And therefore, to rejoice in the fact that we have received the grace of God and that the grace of God is in us takes us right out of this realm of self and we are rejoicing in God. What we are, not what we do. So it doesn't matter what a man is, what his gifts are, what he's been enabled by God to do, what results have followed his work. Oh, I say it's nothing in comparison with the fact that he has received the grace of God. But let us go on. This is superior and this is something in which we ought to rejoice and to go on rejoicing because it emphasizes our relationship to God. You see what it means. It means this. If I am rejoicing in the fact that my name is written in heaven, it means that I am rejoicing in the fact that God has ever looked upon me. That God has ever called me by his grace. That God himself has written my name in the book in heaven. That's what it means. I remember once reading about a man, a saint in Germany in the Middle Ages, I think it was or a little later, who on his deathbed asked that uh, when he did die and the funeral sermon was to be preached, that the text should be the text that we are considering together this morning. He even went further. He divided up the text. He put down the headings on a piece of paper. And I don't remember it all, but I do remember that the first heading which he'd got down was this. Who is the one who writes the name? I happen to remember that the second was this. The ink in which it is written. Ah, you see how right he was. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. It means this that I know that the Almighty God himself has written my name in the book of life. It means I'm rejoicing in my relationship to God. Nothing that I am, nothing that I do, but in my relationship to him. Oh yes, it means this also, that I am rejoicing in the fact that my sins have been forgiven. It means that I am rejoicing in the fact that I know that the enmity that was between me and God has been removed and that I am reconciled to God. Listen to this as John puts it in the book 
of Revelation in the 20th chapter, verses 11 and 12. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. So it means that, therefore, doesn't it, that if I'm rejoicing in the fact that my name is written in heaven, I'm rejoicing in the fact that Christ has loved me and has died for me. I'm rejoicing in the fact that my name is inscribed in that roll in heaven, written with what? With the blood of Christ. That's the ink. The blood of Christ himself. Here's the thing to rejoice in, my friends. Not in your experiences, not in something peculiar and special to you, not in something that you have that nobody else has, not in some extraordinary thing, but in the fact that the blood of Christ has been shed for you. And that because of that your sins have been blotted out. And that your name is in the book of life that will be opened on the morning of the dead day of judgment. But more it means this. It means that God has made us his children. There's nothing greater than that. And yet how infrequently do we remember this? Do you know the greatest thing that a man can say in this life and in this world is just this? My God. The greatest thing a man can ever know is that God has said of him, I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's nothing beyond that. It's the highest privilege, the greatest honor. Why is it, I wonder, that we don't think of these things more frequently? Why are we so interested in these experiences and in these gifts and in the things we do and in the things that come into our life and so on? Why is it that we are dependent as we are upon feelings and things of that kind? Why is it, my friends, that we are not spending the whole of our time rejoicing in the fact that we can say, My God, and that we are God's children? Isn't that the trouble with us? You see, if you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. You're not only a child of God when the sun is shining, you're a child of God when the clouds are there. You're not only a child of God when you're receiving gifts in such abundance that you scarce know how to contain them, but you're still a child of God when he doesn't seem to be giving you anything. You're a child of God when things are running smoothly, but you're equally a child of God when bereavement and sorrow come. It never changes, it never varies. But oh, I say, the blindness which afflicts us, which uh, allows us to look at anything save this fact that we are in this wonderful relationship to God. For if my name, I say, is written in heaven, it has been written by the finger of God himself. And it means, therefore, that he knows me and that I am his child. And that, in turn, leads to this. It is a guarantee of his care for me. If I am a child of God, well then, I know for certain that all the very hairs of my head are numbered and that nothing can happen to me apart from God. 
That's why our Lord tells us to go on rejoicing in a thing like this. You see, this is the guarantee. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Can you imagine anything greater than that? My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. If you belong to him, says Paul to those Philippians, that's the promise that covers you. Listen to him again. He, he says, is able to make all grace to abound toward you, that he, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Can you imagine anything more all-inclusive than that? All things, always, all sufficiency. There is literally no limit to it. Now, you see, this is why our Lord tells us to rejoice in something like this. If your name is written in heaven, well, you're in the hands of a God who can do things like that. You are his child, and because you are his child, well, then he is guaranteed to supply you with every need that can ever arise in your life and in your experience. And there is no limit to what he can do. That's the thing to rejoice in. How trivial everything else becomes by the side of this. The things that come and go. The things that are special to me. Here is the fact. I am a child of God and in his keeping. Well, dear, that let me go on. It guarantees our perseverance also and our final security. The Apostle Paul, having looked at every possible challenger, is able to say, having inspected them all, that he is persuaded that nothing, Nothing whatsoever shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Nothing whatsoever. It's an absolute guarantee of that. If your name is written in heaven, it's there and nothing shall separate you. It's impossible. Listen to this again in the book of Revelations in the third chapter and in the twelfth verse. If your name is written in heaven, it means that Christ says this about you. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Had you ever thought of the Christian before as a kind of parcel? There is the parcel. You look at the parcel and see what's written on it. And you will find that the name of God is written upon it. This passenger belongs to God. Where is he going to? He's going to the new Jerusalem. He's got the stamp, the mark is on him. He's God's, he belongs to God. He's a part of God's possession, and that's his destination. And it's certain. Nothing can ever remove it. So it's not surprising, is it, that top lady said this? My name from the palms of his hands, eternity shall not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. And if that is true, he's entitled to go on and say the other thing he says, which is this. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits 
in heaven. You see, if my name is written in heaven, I'm absolutely certain of all that. And lastly, I'm certain of this. That as I am thus destined for the new Jerusalem and for heaven, it means that I know for certain that I am going to have the priceless privilege of beholding the things that are to be seen in heaven. You see, if my name is written in heaven, I know this, that a day is coming when I shall be there. And I shall see God. I shall attain to the summum bonum of the spiritual life, the vision of God. I shall be a sharer in the beatific vision. We shall see him. We shall see our blessed Lord and see him face to face. No longer as in a glass darkly, but as he really is. We shall see and shall share in that glory that baffles description. If my name is written in heaven, it's a guarantee of all this. Well now, our Lord tells us to rejoice in that. In things like that. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Now, my friends, let me put the simple question to you. Why is it that we don't spend more time in thinking of things like this? Surely if we spent our time in doing this, nothing could upset us. Nothing could cause these fluctuations. Nothing could upset us or disturb the even keel of our life. Oh, let us decide together to look at this thing. The fact that our names are written in heaven and glory in nothing else. Because it means to glory in God and in his Christ. In nothing and in no one else. But in him and in him alone. So that leads to my last question. Do we rejoice in this fact? Are we rejoicing in it? But ah, says someone, how do I know that my name is written in heaven? That's the question. Christ tells me to rejoice in the fact that my name is written there. How do I know that my name is written there? How can I know that my name is written there? Well, this is a great subject. I can't answer it in a few words, but I can give you the headings. You'll find it really expounded perfectly in the first epistle of John. The whole point of that epistle is just to answer that question. Here are some of the tests. He that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God, the only begotten Son of God and the Savior of the world, the one who has made the way of redemption, you are born of God. That means your name is written in heaven. For no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And no man receives the Holy Ghost unless he is a child of God. That means his name is written in heaven. Therefore, that's one test. But if Christ is not your Savior, your name is not written in heaven. And you cannot rejoice. The other test is keeping his commandments. Being able to say that his commandments are not grievous, but that we really delight in them, though we may occasionally fail to keep them. But we want to. And that is our greatest desire. What else? Well, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We love Christian people. We prefer them to anybody else. We realize they're the salt of the earth. 
we really do love them. And we rejoice in being with them. Why? Well, because we know we are all destined for the same glorious eternity. We are rejoicing in the same thing. And the last test I'd mentioned this morning is that we have received the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we have received the Spirit? Well, finally, the ultimate proof of the fact that my name is written in heaven is the fact that the Spirit witnesseth and testifieth within me that that is the case. Shall I put it simply and in a personal form? In spite of all my imperfections and in spite of my sin, I know that my name is written in heaven. I know it. I know it by the witness of the Spirit. I can't get away from it. I know it's a fact. It's the biggest thing in my life. I have this consciousness given by the Spirit. The Spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I don't understand it. I'm conscious of my terrible unworthiness, but I belong to Him. My name is written there. I know I'm going there. It's the Spirit alone that gives that witness and that knowledge. But He does another thing. He produces a certain fruit within us. And if you are conscious of the fruit of the Spirit within you, you can be perfectly certain and happy that you are a child of God and that your name is written in heaven. Well, I say again as I close, this is surely the only thing in which we should go on rejoicing don't we feel rather ashamed of ourselves that we've ever rejoiced in anything else, that we've got excited about other things and talked with animation and have become excited? I say, my friends, these other things, they come and go. This is the thing. In this rejoice that your name is written in heaven, that it's in that book that will be opened, that you'll hear it read out, that you've passed from judgment to life, that there is no condemnation for you, that you belong to Christ, purchased by his blood, made a child of God, and a special object of his affection and his care. May God give us grace to look at this ever always, to keep this at the center of our lives, to be interested finally in nothing that belongs to self as such, but only interested in the fact that we are in this blessed relationship to God and that we are going on through this life of sorrow and of trouble and of trial to that glory where we and all who are there rejoice in nothing but in Him and who spend their eternity in singing the praises of God and of the Lamb that once was slain. In this rejoice not that the spirits are made subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen.